0: This week's Tribcast is sponsored by What's the Difference Between a Pandemic, Epidemic, and Outbreak? A Texas A&M epidemiologist explains the distinctions of the three terms at today.tamu.edu. And are you listening to the Conferences for Women podcast, Women Amplified? Tune in each month as award-winning journalist and author, Celeste Headley, elicits insights and inspiration from your favorite conference speakers.
1: Hello and welcome to the March 25th edition of the Texas Tribune Tripcast. This is Alexa Uda. We're doing something a bit different this week in light of the moment we're in. The roundtable discussion and banter that's typical of the TripCast doesn't adequately align with the fear and anxiety that many are living with amid the coronavirus pandemic. The Tribune is also practicing social distancing, so all of our reporters are working remotely for the time being. What we're doing instead is one-on-one conversations with some of the Tribune reporters who have been bringing you the news on the state of coronavirus in Texas. This week, I'll be joined by energy and economy reporter Mitchell Furman, immigration reporter Juliana Aguilar, and criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Mitchell, I want to start with a statistic that was in one of your stories from the last week. Uh, It showed that from March 8th through March 14th, there were more than 16,000 unemployment insurance claims filed with the Texas Workforce Commission. And that was compared to 11,556 claims filed during the same week in 2019. I mean, how bad are how bad of a sort of economic forecast are we facing as people
2: are losing their jobs economists say it's it's kind of early to tell um, we just don't have the data yet from the last couple of weeks when things really took a turn um, with the economy um, they they also you know Glenn Hager the Texas comptroller yesterday went on Texas standard and said that projections are putting unemployment at nine percent. And in January, the last month available, unemployment in Texas was at three point five percent, which is and you know Hager called that a historic low, the best ever monthly unemployment rate in Texas was three point four percent almost a year ago. So, and there were there were seventeen states in the U.S. that had their best. Ever unemployment rate in January, and and uh, yeah, so nine percent is a is a striking was a striking number by the comptroller, and he said that that number could slide into the into the low double digits. Uh, so while the unemployment insurance claims we won't see for March until mid to late April, most likely, um, you know, analysts are warning that it could it could be pretty dire.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we're seeing people lose jobs, obviously as businesses are closing, restaurants are closing, the oil and gas industry has slowed down. Is it, is it, but is it one or two industries that are kind of leading these numbers to go up this much, or is it just kind of a broader confluence of, of every, of the entire coronavirus response in the state?
2: No Business has really not been impacted by this. Uh, every every sector has been impacted one way or another. Um, in Texas, obviously, um, the energy sector is is a huge part of the economy, and oil and gas is a big component of that. And due to a kind of oil, kind of a fixed price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Um, that has kind of directly affected the U.S. shale industry, and a large part of that shale industry is in Texas. And so a lot of companies are making cuts. Um, I talked to a woman yesterday who, uh, born and raised in Odessa, and works for an oil and gas company there at the moment, and she said she was never so happy to receive a pay cut because all of her colleagues got laid off.
1: Wow. Wow. I mean yeah, we we've heard so much about the stock market and kind of broader economic impact but in reality, I mean, there are so many of stories like that, right? Like you've been talking to so many Texans who either work or worked in the service industry or in other industries who have already lost their jobs or already facing fewer hours. I mean, tell me, tell me more about what life looks like right now for some of those individuals.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned the restaurant industry, and that's that's an, that's one that has taken and taken a big hit um, across the state. Um, and some, you know, the, the we're kind of seeing the safety nets that don't exist for the restaurant industry. And they, you know, they're trying to, people in that industry have tried to um, ask officials, you know, statewide officials in Austin for some relief one way or another, whether that's, you know, a relief on monthly taxes that are due or otherwise. Um, and so they're just, they're, it's an industry that already exists with pretty thin margins, you know, and if adding in a, you know, any disruption, let alone a a pandemic would cause a, cause some, some serious issues. And, and we're kind of seeing that now with, um, you know, a lot of employees, some restaurant owners have, have told me that they don't want to get rid of their staff, but they don't have any, they, hardly have money coming in.
1: Yeah. Is our is our state unemployment benefit system set up to handle what is has already been has proven to be an uptick in people seeking help and will continue to probably significantly increase. I mean, just from a logistical standpoint and working through applications, you, you talked to one worker who was on hold for a really long time, even trying to get through and, and trying to get that assistance. I mean, what does that uh, sort of system look like for people now as so many people are kind of seeking that help?
2: Yeah, the Texas Workforce Commission, the agency that receives um, the, the claims, they say that, they have over a thousand staff ready and and that anyone who applies you know anyone that that is seeking the benefits should should receive them if they qualify um, but we've seen several instances of their website going down um, and we've like you mentioned we've talked to people who have had specific issues getting through uh, so some mixed messages a little bit. Um, but you know, that they're, they're swamped the workforce commission and they're, you know, I just from, you know, dealing with them through the reporting and, and talking to them, I know that they have a lot going on, so I'm sure they're, they're working on it, but, um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see.
1: Julia, let's start with your story from a few days ago that featured this sort of unlikely alliance between groups representing immigration judges, ICE workers, and immigration lawyers, essentially calling for a suspension to immigration court proceedings. What's sort of the landscape on that front right now?
3: Well, news broke late Monday night that the Department of Justice um, and the branch that covers immigration, the Executive Office for Immigration Review, they postponed um, migrant protection protocols hearings ...for about a month until April 22nd. Um, and what MPP is, it's also referred to as Remain in Mexico. This is the program that started in late 2018 and really sort of blew up in Texas uh, last year... ...that sends asylum seekers, mainly from Cuba and Central America, back to Mexican cities. So we're talking Ciudad Juarez, Nuevo Matamoros, Reynosa... ...while they wait for their hearings in American courtrooms. And what these groups, which include immigration attorneys... Uh, immigration judges and even some ICE uh, employees so like you said an unlikely alliance they were saying look you're lining these people up in close quarters you're transporting them in close quarters you're putting them into packed courtrooms I've been in these courtrooms and they put 30 people in there and it's it's very tight right so it's the exact opposite of social distancing so what these groups were saying is like look this is is not it's not healthy it's not healthy for anybody you know Um, not only the migrants who are you know In not stellar conditions in Mexico, but also the judges, the bailiffs, the attorneys, the interpreters and everybody in between. So those are postponed, but they are still having immigration court for the detained docket, which, again, these folks are saying it's only a matter of time before one person gets sick and and this thing spreads the way we've seen COVID-19 spread in, in every other shape and fashion.
1: Yeah, I mean, you wrote about one asylum seeker who was detained at the Carnes facility with his wife and children and, you know, their arrival coming before coronavirus was deemed a pandemic. He described the fear they're living with inside the facility and he the way he put it was, you know, if it comes here, we are doomed. What are immigrant advocates asking for on this front from the, you know, on the detention front and the proceedings that are still moving forward there?
3: Uh, Well, I mean, they want everybody released from detention, which, you know, it's very unlikely that's going to happen. But at the very minimum, they're saying, look... We need to at least release the, the folks that already have medical issues. I mean, in the Carnes facility, like you said, there are uh, pregnant women in there. There are elderly folks. There are young children. So they're saying at least let's that's, that's specify a certain class of people that are more vulnerable to COVID-19. And let's at least release them. And for everybody else, let's make sure that they're getting medical screening. Let's make sure that they're isolated, that there's uh, some sort of mechanism in place to keep them far apart. And, you know, people gotta realize this isn't just something out of the blue. We saw in 2019 how you had young children dying in border patrol facilities, in ICE facilities. So they're saying, look, the DHS track record for keeping these people healthy is not stellar even before COVID-19. So now that just sort of adds a sense of urgency to, to what these folks want.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about hospital capacity a lot. I mean, we've all been thinking about hospital capacity a lot and kind of trying to square that with some of the issues we've already seen with people who are being detained and whether they're getting medical treatment quickly enough. I mean, knowing that and knowing that sort of track record that people have been pointing to, do we know what kind of conditions migrants are dealing with in detention in in as far as like what is actually being done to help prevent the spread in the detention facilities? Uh,
3: according to ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement, you know, they, they have a, a fact sheet and most of the spokespersons will just refer you to that instead of giving a, a statement about an individual case or an individual facility, but you know, they said they're following protocol from the CDC that if somebody is experiencing symptoms and they'll let them out of the hospital. And you know, to ICE and DHS's credit, they have released folks that have been detained that are, are ill, right? They have sent people to the hospital, but it's, does it doesn't have to get to that point before something like this spreads, right? Because I mean, we've seen that some people exhibit, um, symptoms right away. Some people are asymptomatic. So you don't really know who, can be spreading this around. It's not like somebody that has appendicitis, for example. You know, they're doubled over in pain. There's an obvious problem with that person, then they'll release that person to a hospital. With this, it's so unknown and so silent and so unpredictable that people are saying, look, everybody is at risk. It, it, it's kind of like what we've been told, right? You know, even if we don't have symptoms or we're not sick, let's act like we are in order to avoid spreading it. I think the folks that, that are inside watching the news, I, I think they're just, that adds to the paranoia. So they just want an overall um, better healthcare system and, and daily, if not weekly checkups on everybody that's been in there. Some people have been in there months and months on end, so... Uh, you know, you, you got to imagine how it's, it's like for us to work from home all of a sudden, we're kind of stir crazy. Imagine these folks that all they have is, you know, one or two news shows that only talks about how bad this thing is. So it's not only the physical uh, sickness that they're worried about, but it's also, you know, it's taking a toll on them mentally as well.
1: Before our next one on one, we've got two more sponsors to go to.
0: Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com. And the nonpartisan LBJ Women's Campaign School trains women to run for office and manage campaigns. Are you ready to enter the political arena? Join our inaugural training, June 9th through the 13th. Applications are due April 19th. More at lbjwcs.lbj.utexas.edu.
1: Jolly, tell me about Stephen Hopwood.
4: So Stephen Hopwood is a 61 year old man. Um, he has a history of pneumonia. He has some scarring on his lungs, and he is um, he was in jail. So he was in a Texas jail in Lavaca County, small town, pretty much directly in between San Antonio and Houston. Um, and he was he'd been in jail since January, and he was there for bail skipping, so jumping bail on an underlying harassment case, and he was in there for under, you know, he was in there on two fifty dollars bonds, so he wasn't able to pay for his release before trial. He hasn't been convicted of any of these. Um, he was set to get out of jail last Thursday. Um, but then when the coronavirus, the new coronavirus started sweeping through the state, um, courts kind of started shutting down. They stopped doing a lot of essential or non-essential hearings and One of those that got canceled was his hearing that he was expecting to offer a plea deal and get out on probation, and that got canceled, so he was stuck in jail. Yeah,
1: I mean, the the idea of leaving people who have not yet been convicted of low-level crime sitting in jail, where the risk of contracting the virus obviously seems high, the the risks are different in that sort of contained space, um, when they could otherwise sort of be out, seems to kind of run contrary to some of the criminal justice reform efforts we've heard people focusing on in recent years, right?
4: Yeah. So there has been a lot of push in the bail reform movement really to try to get people out, um, especially like nonviolent felonies and such and that, or misdemeanors, especially, um, without having to pay. Cause a lot of people are stuck in jail simply because they can't afford to pay for their release, um, before they're tried and if they're ever convicted. um, That has been, you've seen a lot of it, actually, there has been a push across the state and across the country, really, since this new coronavirus has taken effect, because jails are incubators, they are arguably worse than cruise ships in terms of once one person gets sick, everyone's going to get sick. Um, So there has been a little bit of a push to try to get people out of the jails who don't need to be in there for public safety reasons. And this is kind of contrary to that, where because court hearings are being canceled, some people are actually staying in longer.
1: Right. Well, you meant, so in your reporting, you mentioned the willingness of some prosecutors and judges to get some low level defendants released, or, you know, generally keep moving people moving them out of the system and out of the jails. Uh, But is this happening uniformly across the state? No, right? I mean, sort of what is the willingness? How does the willingness kind of depend on where you are?
4: Yeah, it's I mean, like most things in Texas, it varies from one county to the next. Um, It's a patchwork system here. And, you know, depending where you are, if you're in Harris County, um, the public defender there says the prosecutors, the judges are working a little bit with defense attorneys to try to get more people out. Um, They're having their initial hearings when someone gets arrested and goes before. The court just to have their bail set. Um, they're having a lot more people released on no cost bonds right away. Um, and prosecutors are okay with that. They're agreeing with that. But, you know, that's not happening everywhere. That's in one county. And it really just depends on what judge you're facing, what type of prosecutor's office you're facing, and how much pushback you're going to get on that.
1: Yeah, well, and you mentioned in your reporting at least one case by someone who was trying to use the coronavirus to kind of force the hand of a defendant.
4: Yeah. So then there's that other extreme, right, where one um, public defender told me about he wouldn't name names at that point because he was hoping that he could persuade them to change their tune a little bit still. But um, he said there was at least one case he knew of where a prosecutor was trying to use the threat of you know, you're, you're really scared you're going to get coronavirus in jail. So you should probably take the plea deal that's already on the table.
1: So some judges are, you know, like us adopting the use of teleconferencing tools, um, mostly Zoom, I think is the one you mentioned in your reporting. Uh, and so the idea of being that some of the churn of the courts could maybe restart soon. But what does catching up look like? I mean, what does the interruption of even a week or two, how does that play out? I was supposed to be on jury duty next week and that's been canceled. And I basically was told you don't have to come back until you get your next issuance.
4: Yeah, so that Zoom has is going to be a big part of it because the actual the Office of Court Administration said shortly after our article that, hey, we have this tool, we're going to provide it to all the courts um, and really encourage judges to start using it even more than the few that have already begun. Um, but you know, there's also concerns with having everything be video conference instead of in person defense attorneys don't really like to not be able to have sidebars with their clients or approach the bench and talk to the judge or even, you know, have sidebars with the prosecutor and try to work something out. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we are in dire times and situations are going to happen that maybe they wouldn't in, in when there isn't a virus spreading across the state, but there is a, um, I mean, catching up is going to be hard. Um, think of Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, in Harris County. They still haven't caught up, um, and that was one county. And this is statewide. So I think, I mean, even if we've only had a few thing uh, cancellations for a while, and we start using more teleconferencing or video conferencing, it's gonna it's gonna have a big impact.
1: So, Julie, there was actually a development in Stephen Hopwood's case. Tell me about what you learned.
4: Yes. So on Tuesday, his lawyer uh, reached out to me and told me that, you know, he was supposed to get out on Thursday, but he was able to get released from jail on Tuesday. Um, His after his hearing was canceled, uh, she filed an emergency motion and another judge who was coming into the town that day, decided to pick up his case and put it on his docket, and he was able to be released, and he is going home. That's all we have for you today. As always, thanks to Spoon for
1: our theme music, and to Texas A&M University, the Texas Conference for Women, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, and the LBJ Women's Campaign School, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Julianne, Jolie, and Mitchell, and our producers Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Alexa.